If you're new or you're visiting with us this morning, again, welcome. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in week eight of a sermon, si- sermon series titled Him and Her, uh, looking at a, a range of topics uh, in the areas of relationship, uh, uh, human relationship, human identity, uh, sexuality, biology. Um, so far, we've looked at uh, Imago Dei, image of God, and how everybody is made in the image of God, uh, male and female, and therefore, regardless of your race, sex, age, mental development, you have a intrinsic, baked-in value as a human being and a quality uh, as human beings. And that, that was where we started. Jordan started us there. And as we went along, that really helped inform and, and provide a foundation for where we went. And from there, we, we looked at what does it mean to be male or him? What does it mean to be female or her? Uh, the sort of biological mainstream. We also looked at biological exceptions, uh, homosexuality, gender fluidity. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we looked at dating and singleness. And as we wrap up in the next few weeks, we're going to look at pornography. We're not going to look at pornography. I was like, don't say it that way when you read it. Dog on it. We're going to look, we're not going to look at it. We're going to discuss the topic of, of pornography. We're going to, we're going to get into um, the topic of sexuality and then finally wrap up with what it means to be sons and daughters. So I really have all your guys' attention now. <laughs> Did not plan that. Um, this morning, though, we're going to look at marriage. Uh, that's where we're going to be. We're going to look at first at the, the place that we find ourselves culturally in, in Canada and in Quebec in terms of marriage, traditional marriage, that type of relationship. And then we're going to go to the Bible and, and say, how does the Bible inform our view of marriage? And the Bible has an awful lot to say about marriage, as you might imagine. So um, I just want to pray for us uh, again, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Papa God, uh, we all uh, need your help this morning as we open your word. We ask that uh, through the, the declaration of your word, your kingdom would advance. Uh, and, and we know that uh, your kingdom uh, right now rests in people's hearts. So spirit, we ask that you would remove hardness from hearts, hardness that um, may be from a cultural perspective or hardness that may be from relational pain. Lord, that we ask that you would remove those things uh, and that Jesus, that you... Um, you would be glorious and beautiful before us this morning, um, and just help me in this task. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I am married. I have been married for approximately 16 years, six months, 23 days, 10 hours, 27 minutes, and uh, 15 seconds, approximately. Um, I have found being married to be both a, a blessing from God and a fiery crucible um, that uh, the Lord has used to shape my heart towards his ends. And I'm very thankful to God for the full range of experience and spectrum of, of what it's meant to be married, both the good parts and the hard parts and the very, very hard parts. Um, because he uses everything for my good. Uh, overall, though, I, I really like being married. It helps to be married to a brilliant and beautiful woman. Very thankful for her. Um, and just the, 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 the partner and help she is to me, and then I get to be to her, and her as a mother and teacher to our children. Very, very thankful and grateful. I know that a lot of you guys like her also, but no one as much as me. Uh, full disclosure, our marriage has not always been easy. Uh, we've had our ups and downs. Uh, more ups than downs. But as you know, marriage, marriage can include, for those of you who are married, you, you realize marriage can include many highs and many lows. And that because of the level of intimacy in that type of relationship, um, though there can be great joy, there can also be um, great fear and pain as well. If anyone's ever been in any kind of bad relationship or known someone or been close to someone who's in a bad relationship, you know just how bad it can get. Uh, And so it's for this reason that I have always felt that it is better to remain single than to rush into a bad marriage, just to escape being single. And uh, my wife, Severine, when we met in Bible college in Saskatchewan, 
uh, she shared this same apprehension about marriage, this sort of like uh, recognition. This is not something that you go into lightly. This is a serious thing. So um, by, by springtime of 2000, uh, we went on one date and then she went back, she left school and came back here to Montreal for the summer. And though I'm from Oregon, I, I stayed in Saskatchewan over that summer on campus uh, for ministry work. And rather than begin our formal dating relationship at that point with that first date, we instead put it off and spent that summer uh, 400 hours long distance on the phone talking about life, talking about what we wanted out of life and what we wanted for family and children and mission, what our calling was. And we read some marriage and relationship books and discussed those over the phone. And uh, you guys are thinking like, this is not a normal, uh, if you don't know us very well, that may sound weird, but for those of you who know us, this is exactly the way we do things is, you know, reading books and stuff and, and a little bit of a nerdy informational approach to things, but we, we wanted, we took it so seriously. So by the time she came back to school in August, we were like, we'd been on one date. We were 95% sure we could get married, that the compatibility was there. And so we prayed uh, to the Lord and we asked him to oversee our new dating relationship. We referred to it as, as, as courting because of our high level of intentionality and, and wanting to just figure out that last 5%, looking for God to wave any red flags, whether this was going to work. And so every Friday night, all that school year, like religiously, we we're like coffee date, dinner date, whatever. Friday night would come, our friends would be like, hey, it's Friday, what do you want to do? We're like, can't, courting, you know, we're doing this. And uh, by spring, we're like, 100%, this is going to work. We also really liked each other. That's important to, to have that. It's not just science, people. Um, like the math says we're good. Uh, so, but then at that point, uh, we got to August of 2001 and I asked her to be my wife and she said, yes, which was great. Uh, so we were engaged for another year. And during that year, we went through very rigorous premarital counseling. Uh, we got a professor and his wife to do premarital counseling with us. And they were, they were super intense. Like they were like, if we find anything we don't think is good, we're going to break you guys up. And we're like, bring it. We've done the homework. If you can find something that we missed in discovery phase, you know, let us know. We want to know. Uh, but we passed, and then um, August of 2002. It was always in August. All of our anniversaries are in August. But August of 2002, we got married. There we are, young, very young. 20 and 23, I think. Uh, clueless. I'm beardless. That's good times. Um, I like that Jesus is there in the window. God is giving witness to our covenant of marriage. That's important. We'll get back to that. And taking it away so you guys can focus. All right. Um, now, technically, at this point in my life, I've still spent more years of my life as a single person than I have a married person, though that inflection point is coming. Um, and so I can still remember what it feels like to be a single man, and particularly as a Christian single man, how the, 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 the glow and allure of the married life sort of appears in the distance as this thing to, to, um, to head towards. And uh, as Dwight and Jordan talked about in the last couple of episodes of the sermon series, the church has a bad habit of kind of elevating the, the status of marriage to sort of this holy grail status, and then conversely, making singleness something that just needs to be fixed, right? We just got to fix that for you. Um, and of course, that's really uh, unbiblical and unhelpful. Jesus was single, our King. Paul was single. Um, there's, uh, Jordan did a great job um, elevating biblical singleness. And so as we get into uh, marriage this morning, what I'm, what I'm hoping to do is to make much of marriage to a room that has a lot of single people in it with, without, without reducing our view of singleness, uh, because as we get into the topic of marriage, we're going to see that it is actually incredibly significant in the Bible, that the Bible um, speaks much of marriage and that marriage is in certain ways intrinsic to the story of what is God, God is doing in history and, and what we see in scripture. So it's like so in there, you can kind of understand and forgive why church folk would, would begin to elevate it above singleness, but we don't want to do that. So just keep that in your mind. And if you missed earlier stuff in this sermon series, it's all recorded. You can go podcast it later. It's all available on our website. Uh, so before we get into the Bible and its view on marriage, um, I recognize that for some folks, like they're like, you know, 
my relationships are none of God's business or the Bible is a really old book. Like what does that have to do with today and what's going on in my life and the relationships that I pursue? Well, we can look at what the culture has to offer in terms of its perspective on this type of relationship. So I think we're going to do that first and then we'll unpack, well, how does the Bible bring something that is different and unique to this discussion? And we could look at all of Western world or even North America, but I want to look specifically at Canada and even a little bit at Quebec of the state of marriage. And we'll look at what has happened, what's happening right now, and then what's sort of over the horizon. Sound good? Oh, yes. All right. First thing, Canadians are waiting longer than ever to get married. Not as long as those folks did, but 1970 was about 24 uh, composite age, male and female. Um, by 2011 census, it had climbed up to 30. And that was like, what, eight years ago? It may now be 31, 31 and a half. Um, there's this trend to wait. Um, same-sex marriage is a thing in Canada now. Canada was actually the fourth country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage. Um, according to a recent census, out of all of the people who are declaring themselves as couples, 0.9, so just under 1%, uh, were same-sex couples, and about a third of those reported being married. We have this weird thing happening where heterosexual couples are moving away from marriage, who, who are waiting longer and are trending away uh, from traditional marriage or not even getting married at all. And homosexual couples are moving towards marriage and are actually even fighting for the right to be married inside of churches and religious institutions. So you have kind of two different groups passing each other in the night here in traditional marriage. But really what's the biggest change that Canada is experiencing is this rise of common law unions, that this is replacing marriage. Um, a, a common law, oh, I turned my page before I was ready. Common law marriage is where two people are uh, cohabitating in a conjugal kind of relationship. They're not just roommates, but there's a, a, an intimate physical level to their relationship. That if you do that for at least a year in many provinces, legally, it's like you're married which is important for things like if you have children and you have shared property, that if you separate, um, the, the, in some cases, you would say like maybe the, the, the female half of this relationship, she still gets to keep half of the stuff. And that the father, though maybe she has um, some rights over the children, that he also has rights over the children, uh, much in the way that they would if they were legally married. The government's kind of stepping in to try to protect um, uh, rights in that way. 20% of all uh, relationships, all family couples in, in Canada are actually doing this now, 20%. Uh, it's a huge, huge amount. Um, Quebec, though, where we are, is like a generation ahead of the rest of Canada, that things are different uh, in Quebec. The, the patterns that we see in Quebec actually rival, if not surpass, the stuff that we see happening in Europe, which is saying a lot because Europe is extremely uh, progressive in this stuff. So it's actually double the number of civil unions, so closer to 40% uh, in Quebec, common law couples, and uh, it's higher than the rate in Sweden, and it's seven times the rate in the United States. So in some ways, when we look at Quebec, you're looking at the future of Canada. Quebec is just like one generation ahead of where the rest of Canada is trending to go. And these numbers would be even higher uh, if it wasn't, that says lower, but it should say higher. They would be even higher uh, if we weren't, if we uh, didn't have all of this immigration happening in Canada from more conservative, more traditional cultures. If you listen quietly right now, you can hear this sort of collective forehead smack happening as all of the experts across Canada are saying, we forgot to carry the one and account for immigration. They've predicted all of these things. People are going to walk away from church. People are going to walk away from traditional values. People are going to walk away from uh, traditional marriage, views of marriage. And they are, but the numbers are way different than what they predicted. Why? Because people are coming from other countries that, and they're, they're getting married. They're getting married young. They're having lots of kids. They have participation in various religious affiliations. They're skewing the numbers. So if you strip that off, Canada is actually much further along when you say like people who are a multi-generational Canadian, they're much further along. When polled, 53% of Canadians said that marriage isn't necessary anymore. So we're already sort of at that 
that tipping point. So in, in, in addition to civil unions and sort of like replacements for marriage, um, all of this stuff that we just looked at, that's all water under the bridge. That's already all happened. Um, what's going on now that's new um, are things that are different variations of the different variations of what it looks like to kind of come together in a married type of relationship. Um, we'll look at three, and all three of these are sort of on the fringes of society. You have to like podcast or use the internet to find out about them, or you maybe see something in the news or reality TV. But um, these three things are going to become mainstream uh, probably very quickly, and they are polygamy, polygamy, and polymory. So first, polygamy. Married to yourself, solo, married to yourself. Who's heard of this? No, almost no one. Okay, uh, love yourself, date yourself, give yourself gifts, commit to yourself. This is a growing trend in North America, particularly among uh, single women, uh, but men do this also. Um, it's like buy a dress, hire a caterer, invite your friends, have a ceremony, and take yourself on a honeymoon to Hawaii. Some of you are like, that sounds all right. It is a bit weird though. Um, but it is going to become a thing. And I'm calling it now. This is going to happen. Uh, say yes to the dress, polygamy edition. This is not real. I drew the, I added the polygamy bit, but it will happen. You'll see it on TV and you'll be like, Brian was right. Saw it coming. Um, this goes hand in hand with just the vast number of singleness, people who are living alone in our country. Like quite a while ago, I forget to get the year, but quite a while ago, the number of people who are living alone surpassed the number of families living with children, like couples and children. Like we're way past that now. Um, so this is sort of part of that. Because it's not, you're not actually marrying another legal person. Um, it's, it's sort of an informal thing at this stage, but it's such a thing that a real federal, Canadian federal government policy group actually addressed this issue just to say, it's not a legal thing, but you can do it. Even if you're married to somebody and you're like, I don't like them anymore. I'm going to marry myself instead. You don't have to divorce them. You can just marry yourself. You won't go to jail, which is what normally happens if you are married to someone and then you marry someone else. That's called polygamy. And polygamy, you know, it's, we're more aware of that. The Mormons have been keeping it alive for a while. Um, the Big Love TV show. Um, you, you have this sense that it's happening out in the world, but you don't really know anyone who's doing this. Um, it's not legal in Canada. You can go to prison for five years, but the sister wives don't tend to rat on you, so it doesn't get prosecuted very often. Um, and it's illegal now because people view it as being a negative, potentially negative situation for women and for children. Although this is probably going to change. Um, 36% of Canadians polled say that they think this should be legalized. Just last April, a polymorous couple, three people, this not polygamous, there's no legal thing here, but a group of three, they uh, went to, before court, to have all three of their names listed as the parent of a child that they had somehow. Um, and the judge agreed. And the judge is like, well, maybe it's not bad for Jimmy to have three parents. That could be a good thing. So already there's now legal precedence going in the other direction um, that this thing is probably going to happen. And you may say, well, isn't polygamy in the Bible? Yes, yes. Okay, we'll get to the Bible. But just real quick, in the beginning, we see no polygamy in the model that God founds in Genesis. And then in the New Testament, Jesus points back and says, that's the way it should be. And Paul says the highest ideal is, you know, elder should be a, a one woman man. Like polygamy is not the ideal. And when you look in the middle and you see in the Bible, like where in the Old Testament, they're just kind of doing whatever they want. Um, problems, right? Abraham, doesn't trust God to provide Isaac because his wife is really old. And so he like marries her handmaiden and has Ishmael. And then, and then they have Isaac later. And now we have the Middle East conflict. Do you guys realize that? Every time you see something on the news about the Middle East conflict, just be like, dang it, polygamy. You know, you see what you've done. This is, this is why it's not a good idea. Um, so it's, it's in the Bible, but it's not okay. Uh, all right, third one, polymory. This is a conjugal relationship between uh, more than two people, as long as the polymorous unions are between consenting adults and remain outside the institution of marriage. Once polymorous union involves polygamous marriage, it becomes a crime, at least for now. Um, and there's a whole bunch of variations there. Um, I won't read them, but you can Google it later. It's like um, 
Global News came up with seven variations. There's a lot. Um, I think, as you can see, that it's like things are starting to fracture at this point, even as we try to label them. My question is, is if these people are living together and sleeping together, do they become a civil union after a year goes by in some provinces and then are now doing something illegal? How does the government even begin to address these questions? It's, 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 we shouldn't be half, my opinion is we shouldn't have to ask these questions, but this is where we find ourselves. Uh, which brings us to the next thing, what's coming over the horizon. So once, the, once polymory and polygamy become legally and socially acceptable, and they will, if the trends continue, and the questions around bestiality are answered, which right now legally oral sex is okay, but intercourse is not. Um, and animal rights activists are actually fighting against what they consider animal abuse, animal rape. But those questions are still up in the air that's still being debated. Once all of that, once we've like, oh, that's all okay, the final frontier is age of consent. And this is where we get into really sketchy stuff uh, with pedophilia. And I know you're thinking like, no, Canada will never endorse pedophilia. If you look back in history, it is not impossible to conceive of a modernized, sophisticated people group thinking that this is okay. And when you look at the reason for why it's not okay, it's the idea of like, oh, well, you know, adults and children, you know, shouldn't interact in this way, but we're deconstructing everything right now. So once adult and child are deconstructed and become meaningless, there will be no more grounds for denying somebody. It will happen that there'll be some court case in the news, some adult and some eight-year-old love each other and want to get married. And who wants to stand in the way of love? We're letting everybody love everybody else. This is what's uh, scary about this process. This is ultimately where it ends. And then the other thing that is going to get really weird, and hopefully I'm dead before this happens, but um, people are going to want to marry artificial things, uh, robots and phones and things. There's already a movie about it. Who's seen the movie Her? It's just, you know, the guy starts dating his AI, his, his Siri phone person. And um, that's super weird, but it's probably going to happen. And, um, and you guys will have to do Bible studies and somebody will have to preach about why you're not allowed to marry your phone. And then, then people on Facebook will lambast them for being narrow-minded and backwards and like getting in the way of love, but I'll be safely dead and with Jesus and won't be my problem. So... That's my plan for dealing with this. Why review all of this? Um, I think it's important to help see that the deconstruction process that we're in right now in terms of this view of marriage and human relationships uh, that involve this, this kind of conjugal activity. Uh, we'll get more into sexuality in a couple of weeks, but this, this kind of thing is being completely stripped of all of its meaning and purpose and even any, any clarity, any boundaries to it at all that would define it as being something is all being stripped away. And I think that there is space now for us in the culture to enter in with the Bible. And even if you don't believe the Bible is from God, you don't see the Bible as uh, uh, an, an authority. Um, you can perhaps come to the place in the midst of all of this to acknowledge that the Bible presents uh, marriage. It pro- provides a clear and authentic, useful, meaningful, beautiful picture of marriage. That in a, in a time when everything is just sort of free and open, to have somebody actually say, this is what it was designed to be. This is the ideal. This is the, this is the reason and purpose for it. The Bible gives us that. So enough deconstruction. Let's get into actually what the Bible says. Um, what does the Bible have to say about marriage? Two things that are interesting about the Bible that you may not know. First of all, it is an Eastern book not a Western book. Western books go beginning, middle, end. Eastern books go beginning, middle, beginning. They circle back around. So second thing you may not have thought of before, but once I say it, it will become obvious, is that the Bible begins and ends with marriage. In the beginning, we have the marriage of Adam and Eve, that God oversees this. And then at the end, we have the the marriage, the, the sort of metaphorical marriage of Jesus and his bride, the people of God, the church, that it comes full circle. And that's true of many themes 
in the Bible. So marriage, because of that, marriage is a deeply biblical uh, concept. And uh, we can't cover everything, but we're going to hit some basic stuff. So right at the beginning, we see that marriage is God's idea. If you're a note taker, this is the first thing that you could write down. Marriage is God's idea. Genesis chapter 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Verse, chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, this passage here gives us a prototypical marriage. And there's elements of this that are significant and that we'll, we'll come back to in a second. But we see here that God made humanity. He made humanity binary. And then he created marriage as, a, as, a, as an institution to draw individuals together to better uh, image himself. And he did this in something we call covenant relationship. Uh, so second point, marriage is a covenant. First, it's God's idea. Second, his idea is to arrange it as a covenant. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, the latter part of the verse, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, your wife, by covenant. Now, in Western culture, we tend to think in terms of contracts. And, and uh, so maybe that's helpful uh, to contrast that. Contracts are very conditional. If you do A, I will do B. If you don't do Z, I will do Y or X, or I won't do this thing. And, and, and so it's conditional. And then secondly, they're, they're legitimized or authorized by the state, by the government. That's the way that, the, that contracts work. Covenants are not conditional in that same way. And in, rather than being officiated by the state, they're witnessed by God. Remember Jesus in the window, looking down, giving witness to uh, our covenant of marriage. Uh, that, that, that's an uh, intrinsic element of covenant is that it's, backed by God, that it's done before God. And they're not conditional, meaning even if you don't do A, I'm still going to do B. This is why when you enter into um, marriage, you have vows that say things like in sickness and in health, right? Even if you get really sick, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to care for you. I'm still going to be committed to you. It's not like, oh, well, you got really sick, so I'm out. Contractually says I'm out. Right? That's not the way it works. In the, in the new covenant that we have by Jesus's blood that he earned for us at the cross, that if you enter into that through repentance and faith in Jesus, once you're in that, it is an, um, a, a non-conditional arrangement where you don't have to be perfect in your following of Jesus for Jesus to remain faithful to you. He is, he is no longer, he is not expecting perfection from you because he himself is, was perfect and, and the whole thing rests on him. So we have that, that same kind of experience as Christians in the new covenant, but marriage is a, is a covenant type relationship. And the exact pattern of the way that this works is found in that, that Genesis passage. John Stott, the Anglican uh, priest and commentator, uh, he arranges it this way in sort of plain language. He says that marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by a public leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent, mutually supportive partnership, and normally crowned by the gift of children. So this is, this is where we get our pattern of marriage. We look at what kind of, what does the Bible mean when it talks about traditional marriage? This is what we get out of the initial creation of it in Genesis. So we see that not only was marriage God's idea, and, but because he made it a covenant style arrangement, he is intrinsically involved in it as it moves forward as witness to it. And then ultimately that covenant is only dissolved when we meet God face to face. So third point, marriage is temporary. Marriage is temporary. Jesus made this really clear. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This is why in the vows, we end with like, until death do you part, right? This is in there because we're, there's an acknowledgement that it is going to end. And that ultimately when we are in full uh, relationship, face-to-face relationship with God through Jesus, the marriage covenant is dissolved. It's a temporary thing. And I think it's really helpful for us to 
remember that marriage is temporary because ultimately what we see in scripture is that marriage isn't just like a good gift to us. It's not just for oneness. It's not just to image God better in, in, in his multiplicity or, or for the produ- production of children or to arrange people to a certain way. Although those are all true and good things. And if we had more time, we could look at each of those. But ultimately we see marriage is beginning to point to something else in scripture, something bigger than us, something grander. Um, so the fourth point this morning would be marriage helps illustrate, firstly, our, our relationship with God. Who knows who this guy is? David Blaine. Now that I say his name, do you know who he is? Some of you, street magician. He hasn't been as popular lately. I think he has stuff on Netflix, but he would do card tricks and stuff, street, street magician. But the way he got famous was by doing stupid stunts. He made a glass coffin, buried it in the sidewalk so people could walk on top of him. And then he like lived in there for like a month or two. I don't know how he went to the bathroom. He had like a hose or something like getting food or air, but he would live in there. People are like, who is this crazy guy? David Blaine. Then he hangs himself in a box underneath a bridge, David Blaine. Then he goes inside a glass fishbowl thing full of water for a month in Times Square and then tries to, this was a dumb idea. He tries to break the world record for holding your breath the longest while getting out of handcuffs after soaking for a month. He failed. He beat it later on Oprah or something, but he just, he, he, that was taking on way too much. Uh, I always think of David Blaine when I think of Old Testament prophets because God was always making him do stuff like that in public. I need you to get naked and lie down in the street on your side for three years. Oh, fine. I need you to take some of your poop and your hair and burn it in public. And people are like, oh, come on, bro, that stinks. He's like, God says you stink like this. I have to do this for a year. You know, come on, Um, don't pray for the gift of prophecy, right? One of the most compelling uh, examples of this is Hosea. God's like, I need you to marry a prostitute. Hosea's like, you know, guess I'll dump my girlfriend, you know, like painful. Um, And it doesn't go well. It's not like the movie Pretty Woman where, you know, Julia Roberts is a prostitute and then she meets Richard Gere or whatever that guy's name is. And then she's not a prostitute anymore and they live happily ever after. I'm making vast assumptions because I was sheltered and I was not allowed to watch movies with prostitution in it. Um, so I've never actually seen this, but I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. And I've told myself, no more 80s movies references. No one here was born, but I don't care. You guys all get the point. Um, Hosea is coming home and his wife has gone back to prostitution. Can you imagine that? Guy in your bedroom trying to hand you money? It's like, are you the pimp? I'm her husband. Oh, awkward, right? And, and so he's angry and hurt, and frustrated, and jealous. There is a lot of emotions going on in Hosea, and Hosea's friends, and people can see him like, Hosea, like, this looks terrible. You must feel all of these things. He's like, I do, and God says that's how he feels about you when you go whoring after other gods from other nations. This was the way that the Lord spoke through Hosea, and the position that he asked him to put himself in, that marriage relationship and infidelity in that situation was used by God in order to illustrate, begin in a a fuzzy way, to begin to illustrate the relationship that he has with his people. Now, this was done in sort of like a shadowy way. It wasn't like really concrete until Jesus. Once Jesus showed up, we saw the true purpose of marriage. Marriage ultimately points to Jesus and the church. Inasmuch as the Lord loves us, gifts us with marriage, all the other reasons for marriage, the one thing that seems to ring true in the Bible more than anything else is that marriage is designed down to a granular level to point to Jesus and the church as an illustration for us so that when people say, well, what is the relationship between Jesus and his people? It's like this. It's like the best marriage that you can think of, the best marriage that you know of. Uh, So Ryan read this earlier. I'll read it again. Uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians. I can't do it anymore. Maybe that little happy face has blocked me. Somebody else take over. Ephesians chapter two. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As I read this, I want you guys to pay attention to one thing. I want you to notice how Paul interlaces husbands, wives, Jesus, and the church how tightly this is woven together. It's like a braid. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should 
Submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul is tying what he's saying back into Genesis 2, what we saw in that initial section there. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this text is the backbone of the way Christians see and understand the intricacies of marriage. Uh, Not only did God create marriage and and have the idea of marriage and institute it as a covenant between a man and a woman, uh, but now we see Paul saying the ultimate reason for the arrangement of the things that the way that they were was to point to the Messiah and his people, to Jesus and the church. And this is a little bit difficult for us culturally. It's a very, very unpopular um, thing to, to, to wrestle with. Um, though the Bible presents an unparalleled level of equality uh, between the sexes, between men and women, and that, and that a lot of, if not all of, the equality that, that women have in Western culture is tied back to Jesus and the teachings of the Bible, that they're rooted and found in that place, that there's this huge level of equality that we have as image bearers, as co-heirs in Christ, that at the same time, Scripture paints within the marriage relationship very different roles, roles that are complementary to one another. And we describe this uh, type of relationship as complementarianism. And as I said, very, very unpopular right now in our culture. This is the kind of thing that like, people would like walk out, carry signs, cuss you out, get angry on Facebook, that kind of stuff. So just to clarify a couple of points around what it means to be complementarian. Uh, number one, men and women are equal in this view. This is opposed to hierarchicalism, which places men above women in all situations, and uh, more extreme views of feminism, which say men are the problem, women are the solution. Uh, and there's an inequality there. Secondly, uh, that men and women have role distinctions in marriage, not in all male-female relationships. Hierarchy would do that. But complementarian view, it's just within the marriage relationship that does have implications for qualifications for the office of elder. Uh, As Paul goes a little further with this, it's based on the roles within the family. So there's that implication. But otherwise, this is completely separate from every other type of male-female relationship. And then uh, if, you know, there's, there's an element of this also that goes back to helping image God better. We talked about that when we looked at Imago Dei and looked at her. You can podcast those to get in deeper. But ultimately, this is designed on purpose with these roles to point to Jesus and the church. That particularly the role that the husband plays is the role of Jesus in this sort of like play, to play this part. And the wife is playing the role of the church, the bride of Christ, and playing that part. And we can see again how these things are so woven together, you would have a really tough time separating them the way that Paul uh, sort of weaves them together. The way that we see that Jesus rescues, redeems, leads, and loves his people. The way the church receives Jesus' rescue uh, and his leadership and his love and his care. There's this sense of one is a giver and the other is a receiver. This idea of giver and receiver is so baked into the male-female relationship, it goes all the way down even to the act of intercourse in marriage, that there's giver and receiver. It's baked in all the way through, though now we try to remove those things. Um, so marriage in all of its aspects pointed Jesus in the church to tell the story. So uh, six points already up there. We believe that marriage should be complementarian. If you are a believer, if you want to tell this story well, you have to do it in this way. Other the story, otherwise, the story is lost. Like right now, my kids are um, practicing to be in this musical. They're doing The Sound of Music. And it's going to be a really interesting thing to say uh, for me. I've never seen my kids do any acting or singing in public really before. So this will be interesting. And of course, during the casting process of this, 
all of the girls want to be Maria. It's the big role. Everyone wants to be Maria and saying the hills are alive. And, you know, there was a lot of drama around that. There were tears. And, uh, but obviously, eventually, selections were made. Why? Because you can't have everybody be Maria. All of the girls, let's just have them all be Maria. And the boys, too. Let's not genderize things. Everybody can be Maria. Think of what that would be like to go to that play. Initially, it would be like a chorus, a choir of people all singing The Hills Are Live. That could be all right. But then once the dialogue happened, it would be really weird. 30 children all saying Maria's lines and then silence as the other parts are unfilled. And then her talking again. And you're like, I'm like tripping out right now. What's happening? This is so weird. Cool, maybe. But the story is lost. No one is getting the, the meaning, the values, the themes, no idea what's going on because it's all very one-sided. That's what's happening right now in our culture as this thing that God invented to tell people about Jesus and the church has been so uh, broken down into little parts and stirred that it's, the story is gone. And I think this is the active work of the devil in the world to destroy something God's created in order to communicate something about himself. And that that the devil does not like that and wants that to be destroyed. And also for many other reasons. Now, not everyone is called into marriage. Um, Some people desire marriage, it doesn't happen, or they're just called to singleness or whatever. Or you may be in a marriage and you're like, my marriage is not doing this very well or at all. Uh, and you may be discouraged by that. I don't want you to be. Um, people get, our culture is so like, oh, I got to find the one, right? Every movie, everything is always going, like if you can just find the person you were meant to be, it is this sort of artificial goal or a climax of your life. That is placing things in the wrong place. Our end game, our hope isn't in that relationship. If it is, you will be frustrated and disappointed. It is in the next life. It is in the marriage to come. Uh, and so in that way, final point, marriage is for everyone. Uh, now, the church is symbolically the bride of Christ um, as a group, uh, and we are currently betrothed to Jesus. We're not married to Jesus yet. We're betrothed to him. And again, guys, this is an analogy. You're not Jesus's girlfriend, so don't get... Uh, this used to bother me a lot. Um, it's just an analogy, okay? Think of him. He's the king of kings. You're not, okay? So he's in charge. You're not. Just, you can be like a knight in his court or whatever. You won't have to hold his hand. Um, so we are, we're, but we're waiting. The metaphor is that we're waiting for our fiance to come back. And he has, we're engaged and he has left to go prepare a place for us in his father's house. And then he's going to come back. And he says, I will take you to be with me in my father's house. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? That's what Jewish first century guys did when they got engaged. They would leave, add some rooms to their dad's house, come back and bring their new wife to be in their father's house. That's a century, we're a first century Jewish bride waiting for our fiance to come back and get us. Okay, again, it's a little creepy, but just don't think too hard about the specifics of that. Um, the point is, is that if you feel like you're missing out on, on marriage for some reason, maybe even in marriage, and you're like, I'm missing something, that's because we were made to be in relationship with God. And through Jesus, that's possible, and that's going to be uh, fully realized later. And Jesus's best friend, John, saw it happen. And in the future, we have this at the end of the Bible. So marriage at the beginning, marriage at the end. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, This is going to happen. This is the culmination of everything in human history. We are going there, but not everyone gets to participate in that. This comes after the separation of the peoples. Some people are sent into judgment. Other people are called into this epic eternal party. Um, This is something that right now, all of us have the opportunity to turn away from the things that we're worshiping, instead to turn and to worship Jesus. That Jesus, through his work on the cross, extends to us as a free gift, the opportunity to be in relationship with him. Not by 
our goodness, but by the goodness that he lived, and then by taking our sin to the cross and killing it, and then rising to new life, that we too can be rising to new life with him, that this is opportunity that we have, and that ultimately then we will be find everything that we are searching for in him, uh, in that place. And even now, as a down payment, as deposit, as you are made holy, that Jesus sends his spirit to live in you as a deposit of what to come and a promise of what's to come. All right, how are we doing on time? Let me wrap this up. Application. All right, challenge. Um, I would like to end this morning with a challenge. Uh, Marriage is hard. Those of you who are married, you know this. Marriage is hard work. So first to the husbands, a challenge to the husbands. Love your wife. Uh, Choose this week in some way to pursue your wife. And you may be saying, ah, but she's rejected me. I know that it feels like that sometimes, that she's rejected you. That's why marriage is for men and not boys. You need to probably get back on the horse and keep trying, even if it's hard, right? Uh, That's important. Um, You did uh, convince her to marry you at some point, presumably, not an arranged marriage, probably for you. And so start there, but also realize that people change, um, especially when they have babies come out of their body. It changes things. Every person is married to about five to seven people over the course of their lifetime in terms of how much change will go through in your spouse. So you probably need to take your wife out on an actual date to an actual restaurant that has like the cloth thing over the table and you order sitting down. That's the right place. And ask her what it is that she wants. The fun part is she might not even know, you know, this is how complex women are. They don't even know what they want, but that makes it more fun. It's a game or like a sport and you need to get better at it. You need to practice. So try and figure that out. Wives, let your husbands love you. Um, Statistically, modern men don't have any friends. Um, You are probably his best friend, if not his only real friend. And uh, their brains are a lot less complicated uh, because of neurological things that you could read about sometime if you're interested. So it's not that hard to take care of a husband. Men have a challenge. Women are more complex. But taking care of a husband is actually quite simple. Um, If you're not sure what to do, you're like, I'm feeling lost. Go get the book, The Care and Feeding of Husbands. There's a manual. It's not long. It's mostly stories. It's really easy. Um, you, You can do it. Um, Know that the part of your husband's brain that is desirous of knowing you relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually is two and a half times bigger in his brain than is the corollary part in your brain. He just loves you two and a half times more in some cases, wants to be with you more, desires to know you more than perhaps you feel in return. That's just the way God made it. I don't know why. Uh, But you may say, well, he's really distant. That doesn't seem like it's two and a half times. It's probably because he has tried and he feels uh, rejected or rebuffed. And so he's protecting himself because of the high level of emotional need that men have, which they won't express necessarily with words, but it runs deep. Uh, And so you may just need to make it safe for him to try. Men will not play a game if they don't feel like there's any chance of of winning and connecting. Um, And just in general, and this is for everybody, whether you're married or not, or you'll be married someday, um, I think that one of the greatest challenges to relationships right now is these things. This is new. That wedding photo of us was taken on film where light was exposed to a chemical process and magically developed into an image that I had to scan with a a printer to even get onto the screen. These did not exist. Things have changed so quickly and we we have not yet fully wrestled as a culture with how much this is changing our relationships. Um, This guy, I don't know if you've seen this, but this guy has gone and photoshopped. Oh no, did it die, the pictures? Oh, the first one died. That's a people standing in their car and the car says just married. She's still in her wedding dress and they're just looking at their phones. But what he does is he photoshops the phone out of their hand. And then you just look at them. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This looks sketchy. It just looks sad. There's a lot of them. There's pictures of parents holding the phones and the kids just looking at the camera like, 
I'm all alone. No one's looked at me with eye contact in three days. Um, so that eventually is what, where we go. Um, you're going to need to put your phone down if you're going to do this challenge. You probably should put it down around dinner time and don't pick it up again until the next morning. Just as a challenge. I'm guilty of this too. Uh, this is a huge issue. So challenge to you this week, pursue one another. Wives, allow yourselves to be pursued. Everybody needs to put their phones down uh, a little bit more. All right, conclusion. I think as we, as we come to our culture and we, as we present a very traditional, very unpopular, and yet very biblical uh, view of marriage, as, as a counterpoint to what's happening in our culture, I think it's important as you're communicating with people about these things that you present it. I think it can be helpful to present it in a way where we of our own freedom and free will choose to enter into traditional marriage, choose to enter into complementarian style marriage to tell the story well. Like, I don't have to do this, but I'm choosing to go into it this way, to tell the story of Jesus because Jesus is my king. If you're a Christian and, and Jesus is asking you to do this, they'll take delight in obeying the clear uh, dictate of scripture in this area, even though it is extremely uh, countercultural. And because uh, Jesus wants people to find the relationship beautiful. And there's a deep level of intimacy that's available when you take on those, that role distinction. Now, I realize marriage is like a big topic and maybe complementarianism and stuff. There could be things that are hurtful, confusing, unclear. Um, after the service, my wife and I'll be in like that area across the hall next to the escalators where there's tables and chairs to do like the, the Q&A thing. Uh, so if you have additional questions in this, you want to dig deeper, you have things that, you didn't, that I was unclear about, I'd love the chance to be able to dialogue with you guys further. So um, let me pray for us and I'll invite the band up at the same time. Papa God, we uh, take delight in looking at your word and finding life in its pages. Um, help us to, to pursue uh, one another in relationship, for husbands to pursue their wives, for wives to feel loved and respected and cherished, uh, for our children, for um, everyone in this room at whatever state of relationship that they're at, in singleness, engaged, married, widowed, divorced. Lord, you know their heart. You know the pain that's there. Um, the longing, ask that you would meet all of our longings so that we could enter into marriage freely without putting that kind of burden on the other person. Um, that you would bless the marriages in our church, uh, that you would bless um, uh, just the, the, the endeavor that we have to proclaim um, something different uh, to a, a culture that is just spinning and losing um, all sense of meaning and control. Um, Lord, help us to be salt and light in this area. And even now as we, as we worship and turn our eyes to you, help us see you as glorious, as our good and kind King. Um, help us to, to worship you rightly in this next time. Amen.